1: Each week, the editors of Christianity Today go beyond hashtags and hot takes and set aside time to explore the reality behind a major cultural event or trend. I'm your host, Mark Galley, and this week with Morgan Lee traveling, we just happened to see her on a Skype call as well. She's in Santa Barbara, all places good for her. This week I'm joined by the editor of CT Pastors, Kyle Rohe. Glad to be here, Mark. Good to be here. Was it a busy weekend for
2: you? This was actually a little bit of a laid back weekend with two little bitty kids. We get fewer and fewer of those these days.
1: I was going to say I'm surprised you get any.
2: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I watch my uh, sons and daughters-in-law and, and their, I watch their grandchildren. I'm just amazed that they have the energy to do. I must have had that energy when I was younger, but I don't remember. It's just astounding to me
2: how much energy it takes to be a parent. It's when our second daughter was born. It comes back to you like riding a bike, but the energy doesn't necessarily <laughs> start there. You have to build up to exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs>
1: so who's joining us today?
2: So today we're joined by Thomas Kidd, and he is the Vardaman Distinguished Professor of History at Baylor University and the author of many books, including The Great Awakening, The Roots of Evangelical Christianity in Colonial America, George Whitfield: America's Spiritual Founding Father, and most recently, Who is an Evangelical? A History of a Movement in Crisis.
1: Welcome, Thomas, or you prefer to be called Tommy, I guess.
0: Tommy's fine. Yeah. Glad to be here.
1: All right. Glad you could join us. Where are we talking to you from?
0: From Waco, Texas.
1: Waco, Texas. Beautiful Waco. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Do you it get
0: is. To... It's kind of beautiful. It's uh, a lot more busy now these days because of the uh, fixer upper craze that we have here. Yeah. It's actually kind of a tourist destination. Yeah, now.
1: I've been there and went to visit their shop. Can't remember the Joanna and Chip Gaines. Yeah, that's right. Their store, their shop, and the lines were outside the door. So I just skipped that. For... <laughs> so that's they have right. put they have put a Waco on the map, which is much better than as you know, as a historian, Waco was put on the map. I don't know what 30, 40 years ago with a big yeah. Sh- out there,
0: yeah, well, yeah, we've we've had multiple shootouts. Here, I see. Unfortunately. When I first came to Baylor, what everybody knew Waco for was the Branch Davidian crisis. That's, and that's the, right, fire and everything. Yeah, and yeah. The, yes, we much preferred being known for uh, fixer upper.
2: There you go.
1: <laughs> Let me introduce this show so everyone knows what we're what we're here for today. Now, I've been embedded in American evangelicalism for over half a century. It's hard to believe when I think back that it's been that long. Having gone forward in an altar call in December 19th, 1965 at the Evangelical Free Church in Felton, California. So, And I have to say that as soon as I became aware of larger trends within the movement, I can't remember a time when some evangelical somewhere wasn't questioning the integrity and future of the movement. If it wasn't the 1970s satire magazine, The Wittenberg Door, poking fun at the ridiculous things evangelical churches did to attract and retain people, it was a group in the nineteen 1980s and 90s who started calling themselves post-evangelicals. Then along came Brian McLaren at the turn of the millennium with his trilogy A New Kind of Christian in which he offered alternative ways of conceiving evangelical theology. Those identifying as emergent took some of his cues and then took things a step further. All this while megachurches offering the traditional evangelical message blossomed and flourished across the land like an ivy out of control. Along with this theological debate and feverish church planting came the beginnings of political firm. On the one hand, Jerry Falwell Sr. and Pat Robertson, among others, fashioned something that became known as the religious right, identifying evangelical religion with many planks on the Republican platform. On the other hand, a smaller group followed men like Jim Wallace, founder of Sojourners, among others, who called for an evangelical Christianity that, when all is said and done, looked an awful lot like platforms of the Democratic Party. Fast forward to November 9, 2016 and the election of Donald Trump. Not only did the nation wake up to discover a chasm dividing the country so did evangelicals find a chasm dividing them from one another, especially when it became clear that white evangelicals voted for and then supported the new president, depending on the poll in the range of 75 to 81 percent. The evangelical left was shocked and horrified by this, and the evangelical right was mystified by their outrage. And many black, Asian, and Hispanic evangelicals, if they still identified with the term at all, looked at white evangelicals left and right and just shook their heads, wondering if either side really got it. So we now have a cacophony of voices shouting at one another, and much of the shouting is about two questions. So what is an evangelical anyway? And more to the point, does it even matter? And that's what we're going to be discussing in this edition of Quick to Listen. Uh, Before we do that, though, we'd like to talk about the recent issue of CT. Encourage you to subscribe. Kyle, you've taken a look at that issue. What struck you as something that listeners might be particularly interested in?
2: Sure. One of the articles that I especially appreciated was titled The Churches in the Trees by Amir Aman Kiaro. And this was some reporting from Ethiopia. And my role with Christianity today tends to stay a little more local in in the States. So I always appreciate these articles that go far beyond my realm of experience and expertise and tell me a little bit about churches in other parts the world. And this one opens up with a, a really beautiful image of a church in Ethiopia. And you, it's an overhead view. And you can see that there is a green spot surrounded by tan all around. And that's what this this article is about, that there are some interesting theological and historical reasons why the, these church Orthodox churches in Ethiopia have made tree conservation a part of their life and practice.
1: That's one thing CT does especially well. I don't know if anyone does it any, you know, I hate to brag, I've only been on the company, company 30 years, but I don't know that anyone does it better than CT of helping us get a glimpse into how Christians and especially evangelicals across the world, what their priorities are, how they practice evangelism, how they seek justice, how they study the Bible, insights they have. It's just another example of that. Quick to Listen is supported by people who subscribe to Christianity Today. I encourage you to, uh, if, you have, if you're have if you not a subscriber, I'm going to make put a guilt trip on you and say you should, because you shouldn't just be getting this for free. A worker is worthy of is higher. So if you go to ct.com and cannot find a subscribe button, there's something wrong. So I encourage you to do that. So let's get into our topic with Professor Kidd. Who, by the way, I mean, we've been following Tommy Kidd's writing for years now at CT, and he's one of our go-to historians when it comes to trying to understand what's going on at various levels of evangelical life. So I'm really appreciative that he's going to be on here to give us insight. It seems to me we should start, in order for people to understand why we're even bothering with this podcast on this topic, to begin with that last question I mentioned. Does it even matter who is an evangelical or not, and whether evangelical religion flourishes or dies?
0: In a certain sense, it doesn't matter. Matter. I mean because you could imagine evangelicals somehow on mass deciding that the term is too problematic and politically charged now and and that we're we're all going to call ourselves gospel Christians or just Jesus followers or something like that that that's not really the way that it works I think realistically uh, the media secular and, and religious media or and and scholars too are likely to keep using the word evangelical <laughs> the term has certainly been Become a fixture of American political discourse over the past four decades or so, and in a way that it never was before. So, I, I think that people who identify with the evangelical tradition are going to keep being described in the media, mainstream media and, and, and religious media and so forth, whether we like the way that we're being described or not. I, I do think it's worth trying to get clear about what historically the the term evangelical has has meant obviously starting with the biblical evangel just you know the good news then where the modern evangelical movement came from part of what i'm trying to do in this book is just to hold that up against the way that the term evangelical is often used in the media, which I think is is some, uh, is often problematic and confusing, or at least vague, and so I think that discussion is is worth having. It you know it wouldn't be a problem in particular, I think, for the movement that we call evangelical if if at some point we could pull it off that we just abandoned the term.
1: So as we begin the conversation, probably it's best for us to help our listeners understand how you understand the term.
0: I try to boil it down as much as I can. And I think in a way you could just say that evangelical means the religion of the born again. The most obvious way that evangelicals have stood out historically from the rest of the the Christian movement is is putting a great deal of emphasis, outsiders would probably say an inordinate emphasis on the experience of, of conversion and Christ's teachings in John 3 in particular about being Born again, which uh, conversion and uh, the new birth experience are not discussed at great length in Scripture. Although I, I as an evangelical myself, I, I think it's <laughs> it's some pretty critical moments in, in Scripture when it is described. But evangelicals have put, I think distinctive, unique emphasis on the need for all people to experience the trans- transformation uh, of the new birth. And that that was what was new to me in the Great Awakening of the 1740s, when I, I think the modern evangelical movement is, is born, was that emphasis on conversion and being born again. And so I think most simply, that's, uh, that's what evangelical Christianity is, is the religion of, of the born again.
1: I have thought about this and written upon it from time to time. One of the phrases I like is the one uh, crafted by, I believe, Anne Lamont, the writer. She talks about when she came to visit Calvin College once where a bunch of evangelicals had come to listen to her. She said, I love being with evangelicals. You're so (laughs) Jesus-y. (laughs) so it seems to me that's one characteristic
0: to elaborate a little further i mean evangelicals also of course have a a deep emphasis on the authority of the bible that became even more prominent in the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the late 19th and early 20th century but then i think too that along the lines of being jesusy that that evangelicals tend to be the most comfortable or or uniquely comfortable among christians of talking about a personal relationship with god some groups at, at different times have talked more about the Holy Spirit. Some have talked more about having a personal relationship with Jesus. But it's, it's that felt presence of God in your life and the leading of God in, in your life that follows after the conversion experience.
2: Based on that, it seems like every book I've read on the history of evangelicalism starts at a different time period. Could you get into a little bit of detail about where you believe it officially began and, and why you choose that spot to start?
0: Of course, evangelicals are going to tend to think that their movement started with Jesus, and I think that too. Um, or, or Billy but, Graham, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was earlier than Billy Graham, oh, okay. but, but uh, <laughs> I, could, I could imagine some people thinking that too. I do fall into the camp that sees the modern evangelical movement beginning in the 1730s and 40s. It's an outgrowth of the Reformation for sure, and it follows on some emphases in the Refl- Reformation of the priesthood of all believers and of the primacy of Scripture. I, I do think something changes in the 1730s and 40s, especially through the ministry of George Whitefield, who is the most important evangelist of the Great Awakening, and his laser focus on the experience of conversion. I, d- I don't think you that you see that quite as clearly among the Reformers. Uh, they, they typically do have an idea of conversion, but they, they are also very much in that kind of medieval mindset that where they they have more of a con- communitarian view of, of faith, put a lot of emphasis on infant baptism. Virtually all of them. So there, there's something new in in emphasis with Whitfield and other evangelical preachers about putting that emphasis on being born again especially with people like John Wesley in in England saying that you can that you not only need to be converted but you can know when you experience the new birth and you can have great assurance that you are saved that you are converted the, the people like the Puritans in uh, 1600s Massachusetts and so forth and back in England would not have put nearly as much emphasis on the experience of the new birth even though theologically they knew the new birth was an important theological item. They, they didn't believe that you you could so clearly discern that moment in the new birth and then have assurance that you have been saved. That that, that was just not—they didn't have so much confidence in that. And so that individual focus of Whitfield and others on conversion that might happen in, in an instant, and you can know it, and you can have assurance that, that you've gone through it, I, that to me is enough of a turning point in the 1740s to see it as as the beginning of this modern evangelical movement.
1: Now, the t- subtitle of your book, of course, is uh, The History of a Movement in Crisis. I, I named some kind of contemporary crises. Talk about that, how it's been... Uh, I assume your book is a part about ongoing crises, or many crises have been part of evangelical life. What do you mean by that?
0: I do think that evangelicals have often sort of thrived on this crisis identity, and and I don't mean that in a a disingenuous or or insincere way. I, I think that even at the beginning, evangelicals were often persecuted, especially the more radical evangelicals, especially the, the new Baptist movement that began to show up as a, as a result of the Great Awakening, uh, just terrible persecution that they f- fell under. And so the crises of, of evangelicals do look, look different, though, over time and space. They have a lot to do with evangelicals position vis-a-vis culture and whether they, they see themselves as fundamentally as dissenters in a hostile culture, or whether they see themselves as trying to seize control of cultural and political establishment, which I think evangelicals since uh, 1980 have tended to be more in that latter type of mode, using politics to try to influence establishment. That's that's a very different type of crisis mentality from, say, a Baptist preacher in in seventeen seventy who was getting thrown in jail and in, in the colonies for illegal preaching. You know, evangelicals will talk about persecution in America today, but they're certainly not facing anything like that. Uh, evangelicals in other parts of the world are today. So I think that they're the type of, of crises that they have gone through, or at least perceive that they've, they've gone through, are highly contingent on their cultural stance. And I think that over time in general that evangelicals in America have Tended to have an increasingly custodial view of their role towards American culture and American. Politics. The kind of crisis that evangelicals have been facing over, say, the past 40 or 50 years has been a sense of worry that they're losing control of the culture. Whether they ever really had control of the culture is another question, but definitely a sense of losing that kind of established status uh, that evangelicals have increasingly worried about.
2: It seems like we're in a time where there's a lot of debate about whether or not evangelicals should be involved with politics, how much so, which party to align. With through the, the history of evangelicalism. Can you point to other specific periods of time when these similar issues have
0: cropped up? I think for most evangelicals, there has not been a, a very powerful, you know, isolationist type of strain, withdrawal strain among evangelicals, because there's always been an understanding that their faith lived out is going to have some political implications. I, I don't think that there's probably ever been a time In American history, where evangelicals, and in particular white evangelicals, have had quite so strong of of an identification with one political party, you know, maybe sometimes like in the 1830s and 40s, a deep identification with the Whig Party, which tended to be the party of moral reform movements, and so they liked that, you know, anti-alcohol and those those kind of causes. But even then, I mean, there there were definitely, uh, especially Southerners, who were more attached to the Democratic Party, and and that's just among whites of course and and then you know at, at different times there, there were there tended to be regional divisions more than there are today where people who believe almost exactly the same things about theology and cultural issues might end up supporting different political parties depending on their their region but today i think there there is a, such a deep identification among most voting white evangelicals to the Republican party that in retrospect In fact, it does seem unprecedented and and I think unhealthy for the the reasons that that I think others have observed which which is that outsiders certainly get the impression from some evangelical leaders that the evangelical movement is just basically a subset of the Republican party that is its basic function the movement's basic function is to support Republican nominees whomever they may be
1: now, help me clarify this I had in your book you talk about that identification with the Republican party began in the 19 19- 50s with the Eisenhower administration. So maybe I have my my decades mixed up, but my impression, and again, please correct me, is that there was a time when uh, Dem- uh, evangelicals tended to identify with D- the Democratic Party in the sense that they tended to be more middle and lower class. They tended to value the party that seemed to at least said it was caring for the poor. And I thought that was in the 50s. A, is, is my impression correct at all? And if it was, what Decades would it apply to?
0: This question points up the the realities of those kind of regional divisions that I, I think were were persistent at least through the 1950s and 60s in uh, in American politics. I mean, if you're a white Southerner uh, and whether you're evangelical or, or secular or what, or whatever Catholic, if you're if you're a white Southerner through the 1950s, basically from Reconstruction to the 1950s, you're almost certainly a Democrat. I mean, there's just no—there is really no Republican Party in the South from, say, the 1870s to the 1950s. There were wings of the Democratic Party. The only real— election in the South in, in in that era was the Democratic primary, and often the Democratic candidates in the South would go unopposed. That tells you a lot of things. I mean, uh, uh, South, the South, of course, now is dominated by the Republican Party. Uh, and yet the, the Democratic Party are, are obviously a, a viable alternative, especially in the urban South today. So for evangelicals, the evangelicals in the South for the better part of a 100 years were all Democrats. And the only Republicans that you could find in the South were on the margins of the South. And when they were allowed to vote, at least through the 1930s, African-American evangelicals would be Republicans. Uh, the Republican Party, of course, is the party of Lincoln and Emancipation. So there there really is, is a more significant transition among African-Americans in, in the South in the 1930s when African-Americans start to go over to the Democratic Party because of Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the new. Deal that there, right there. I mean, you could you tell a little more complicated story about uh, political allegiances in the North. It is true that disproportionate numbers of evangelicals nationally, especially in the 1930s and, and 40s during the Depression, would have de- been Democrats for sure. But in the South, that was saying nothing unusual or interesting at all because the the Solid South in those days was the, the Democratic Party.
2: Now, can you speak a little bit a, a little bit earlier? to that. I've been thinking about the 1920s quite a bit recently, and it seems like there are significant parallels between uh, what was going on, and and the the lines weren't drawn quite like they are today, but the the fundamentalist evangelicals and ways that they were engaged in the political process, things like teaching evolution, came to something of a crisis point, at least looking back on it, with the Scopes trial. Do you think that those are, are fair comparisons to make?
0: I do. When you look back from the 1870s to 1920s, in, in Northern politics, there did tend to be that kind of class division. And so William Jennings Bryan, who, who became famous as a three-time Democratic nominee for president, I mean, most of the divisions in national politics those days were over economic issues and business interests versus working people's interests and so forth. And Bryan, who really, before Jimmy Carter, was one of the only presidential candidates who was recognizably even Evangelical who, who nearly got elected president. And, and Brian definitely saw, without getting into the details of the economic policies, I mean, he, he saw his defense of what he saw as just economic policy as a defense of the poor. And he would have said, I, I do this because I'm a Christian. Overall, uh, northern business interests, many of whom were uh, influenced by evangelical churches. They tended to be Republican. And then Brian sort of fell out with the Wilson administration in the 19-teens and kind of ended up Sort of looking for something to do and a way to kind of refresh his career. Up until that point in the 19 teens, 1920s, the fundamentalist modernist controversy had been going on for, say, 40 years, but it had mostly been a contest within denominations over theology and over modernist theology and views of the Bible and control of seminaries and and those kind of questions. Brian, in a way, swooped in and he was, of course, quite passionate about uh, the evolution issue and really changed the nature. Of evangelicalism itself, I think at least the public image of evangelicalism, which up to that point had definitely not been tied up with evolution in any kind of exclusive way, but Brian changed that, and and he and he turned the course of the fundamentalist combativeness towards American culture, uh, towards focusing very narrowly on this question about the teaching of evolution in public school. So that that's a turn. Not only towards evolution, but towards that kind of establishmentarian view where now we're not just arguing about theological controversies within our own denominations and seminaries, but we're trying to say what shall and shall not be taught in America's public schools. And of course, in, in those days, there were a number of states that had banned the teaching of evolution in, in the public schools, including Tennessee had. And that set the stage for the Scopes trial. And because of the, the trial and the movie Inherit the Wind, at least the basic parameters, I think, are familiar to, to most of your listeners that Brian sort of, you know, overstepped into the debates with Clarence Darrow about the authority of the Bible and so forth. And he was he was very ill at the, at the trial and uh, wouldn't have performed well, I think anyway, but especially because he was so sick. It was just kind of an embarrassment, and the media loved it and became a circus. But I think a lot of evangelical leaders at the time kind of had this feeling that's familiar to some of us today of our movement sort of has gotten taken over by sort of some people that we we we're, we haven't been working with for very long and uh, now all of a sudden they're the public face of the movement and all of a sudden the movement is all about evolution in public schools and so there were there were some leaders at the time who said you know Brian's not really the leader of our movement but all of a sudden he's kind of taken it over
2: wow that sounds um, and, so yeah, familiar <laughs> yeah. with with that in mind uh, you know the the crisis of the 1920s tended to coalesce around the teaching of evolution in schools. What would you say are the core issues in our current crisis of evangelical life?
0: I think for sure that the way that Scopes was shattering for evangelicals in 1925, that no surprise to you, that the election of Donald Trump in 2016, I think is a, is a parallel. And I try to draw out some of those parallels about, about this feeling of not really being in control of your own movement anymore and that the public impression of the movement is sort of spun often in different directions that a lot of core evangelicals or, or at least kind of perplexed by. But now I do think that the crisis has to do with white evangelical involvement with the Re- Republican Party that, as you said, really got started in the 1950s. I think sometimes we think it just started with moral majority, but that, that's not right. It, it, it started with, especially with Billy Graham and Dwight Eisenhower. A little blip uh, along the way with the election of Jimmy Carter in 1976, in which at least a lot of Southern evangelicals went Carter. And then, of course, the election of Reagan in 1980, and the, the partnership with the moral majority sort of begins this 40-year alliance between white evangelicals and uh, the Republican Party. Th- that went okay, I guess, for for a while in, in the sense of, you know, people like Eisenhower, Reagan, you know, were not evangelicals themselves, at least not in, in any decisive way. But they these people kind of knew how to talk to evangelicals and had a lot of evangelical friends. Uh, George W. Bush is certainly an evangelical of a, of a certain kind, although a little bit more mainline-tinged evangelical, it, the, the, it started to fray a little more, I think, with uh, the nomination of Mitt Romney uh, as a Mormon, that, that kind of test of, of white evangelicals' sympathies about, uh, you know, given the the historic animus between evangelicals and Mormons, um, is that is that still going to pan out? And yes, in fact, it did. And then, of course, the, the great test in 2016 about Trump, it came to pass that he had a lot of evangelical and prosperity gospel friends and supporters who he consulted with so so I think he he developed a sensitivity to evangelical concerns but of course his his personal life would seem at many points to contradict evangelical standards for morality and behavior and the way you talk and, and that that sort of thing but at least among self-identifying white evangelical voters the the alliance didn't break in, in spite of the fact a really strong formidable group of even white traditionalists traditionalist evangelical leaders expressed grave concern about Trump, but it didn't seem to make much of a difference to have that never-Trump evangelical cohort. And so he racked up uh, similar types of numbers percentage-wise of the the previous Republican nominees.
1: Yeah, the very fact that you and I have both used the term white evangelical uh, uh, more than once in this podcast, my recollection is before 2016, that was not a phrase that we often use. So obviously race has become part of the equation. Now talk about that a little bit.
0: And is that something new? It's not new. Uh, It's it's just that I I, one of my concerns about the way we talk about evangelicals is that the most common uh, news story about evangelicals in the past 40 years, but certainly in the era of Trump, is about polling and and evangelicals. So often the polls that we're looking at are not talking about evangelicals in general, but they're talking about white evangelicals, and not just white evangelicals in general, but white evangelical voters. Even in presidential years, there's usually 40-something percent of white evangelicals who don't vote, but I don't see any reason to exclude them from the evangelical fold if they hit all the, you know, the usual theological and experiential metrics. So it it turns out, I think, that we're we're talking about a a pretty narrow group, though obviously in partisan politics they're enormously influential and significant. But in the evangelical movement, generally they're a slice uh, that that has access to disproportionate uh, financial resources and, and political power. But I don't like like the way that we Talk about so often in, in the media for for shorthand that eighty one percent of evangelicals supported Trump. No, no, it's that that is absolutely not what the statistics say. And uh, there are certainly many Hispanics who identify as evangelicals. Asians, fewer African Americans will use the word evangelical because they don't like the political connotations of it. But but uh, larger numbers of African Americans certainly will identify it as born again. A lot of those people. Uh, voted against Donald Trump. A lot of those people, of course, don't participate in politics, just like many white evangelicals don't participate in politics. But I think there's a tendency to have white evangelical voters who vote Republican stand in for the the whole American evangelical community. And I think that's a mistake.
1: I think the clarification on that stat is that it was 81 percent of evangelicals who voted And it doesn't take into account the number who didn't vote because they were so, for one reason or another. So
0: in a lot of cases, the polls don't even have a category for non-white evangelicals. I mean, there's historic reasons for that. I mean, there's a desire to treat the black church as a coherent whole, many of whom are evangelical, at least in style. But some of them theologically are not evangelical. I mean, so, you know, like Martin Luther King is a great example of somebody who's sort of stylistically evangelical, but theologically not. And so the, the pollsters tend to, t- to treat all those people as kind of a, a lump so that they'll, they'll stand out more as a, a coherent black community in the, in the poll. So it's not necessarily out of ba- bad motivations, but Hispanics often they don't often they don't even break out a category for Hispanic Protestants. I mean, and almost all the Hispanic Protestants would be evangelicals or Pentecostals. It's not just an oversight. I mean, it's often by design that the polls are just talking about white evangelicals. Evangelicals, and if you dig into the details, you can find this out. But often the way the media picks it up is that they just say, "Well, eighty-one percent of evangelicals."
1: And I've just experienced that on our Christianity Today board of directors. We have a one member who's a pastor in Minnesota, and he feels like in his context that would just wouldn't work for him to use the word evangelical to describe his beliefs or anything of that sort because it's it has it's so radioactive. And yet the Hispanic member of our board said oh my gosh, I love the word evangelical. I use it all the time. It's a wonderful marker for the Hispanic community. So it was a microcosm of some of the, the divisions in our movement today.
0: The Hispanic evangelical community is the growth area in the United States for evangelicals, so preeminently. And in their Context, I think the word evangelical tends to be more synonymous with Protestant because, because Hispanic even you know Hispanic communities are so often culturally Catholic that it's a really good way for them to stand out and so evangelical almost is a little bit more like what evangelisch meant in the Protestant Reformation you know because that was the word that the, the German reformers would use the Lutherans and, and so forth would use to describe themselves because it means it means they're not Catholic.
3: This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com.
0: What I loved most of all about Israel and why
1: I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
3: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post October seventh world.
1: Six thirty a.m. We're we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're and they're going on and
2: on. There.
3: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
1: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't. I, I didn't come home. Mateo, my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week,
3: Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place.
2: We've talked about leaders of the movement as a whole, but as I'm thinking about the audience that I write for on a regular basis, pastoral, senior pastors or solo pastors, do you think there was a schism between the general leadership in the evangelical church and how they do or don't use that term and the general laity?
0: I'd love to know more about that question because I I, anecdotally at least, and I I believe this and and I've heard it from others, that a lot of the laity— don't identify with the term evangelical at all. And I think that that may be even more the case in the South uh, than it is in the North and the Midwest, the West. You know, Mark, you mentioned the evangelical free church. I mean, there are occasionally evangelical denominations that use the word evangelical in their denominational name, but it's just as common to have, say, the evangelical Lutheran church in America, which is not evangelical (laughs) by the terms we're talking about. I mean, it's mainline. So if it's connected to a denomination name that's that's one thing but you know i go to a church in waco texas so it's a baptist church and by all the usual metrics it is thoroughly evangelical and i do not think there's very many people in my church who would volunteer that word as the name not because they have a problem with it but just because it's not part of their kind of normal vocabulary it's more of a scholar's or a journalist's term. You know, that, that's, a, that's a huge problem. But I do think that, that in the, the more formal leadership of the evangelical movement, that there, there was a, a schism in, in the sense that, I, I mean, I'm really impressed when you go back through in 2016 about how many very prominent and quite conservative white evangelical leaders spoke out against Trump. I mean, it's a who's who. I mean, we're, we're talking about John Piper, Al Mohler, Russell Moore, Bethmore, Mar- Marvin Alasky, a, a really impressive list of evangelical leaders and these are not liberals, right? <laughs> these are this is not Jim Wallace. I mean, you, you expect Jim Wallace to say something about it, but but the, the, this is a very impressive group. You had never seen anything like this since 1980, to have that kind of group of, of leaders speaking out against the Republican nominee, and it seemed to make almost no difference at all. And I, I don't think it speaks to uh, the, the lack of effectiveness of their leadership. I, just, I, I don't know what the disjunction is between these people who are saying that they're evangelicals to pollsters and then those kind of core evangelical leaders. And and some, there's something that's gone wrong in the way that we perceive that relationship. Who are leaders and who are followers and who's the rank and file and what are they doing? Because they, there was a huge break uh, among evangelical leaders against Trump. And in the self-described evangelical rank and file, it seemed to make no difference at all.
1: It seems to me that the division is not between... And so I'd like you to hear a reaction to this observation that I've made, and that it's not not between leaders and followers, but there is actually a class division in evangelicalism, so that Russell Moore and Al Mohler and John Piper are all part of what I would call the evangelical elite. I mean, the people are associated with World Vision and Gospel Coalition and Christianity Today and all the establishment organizations, and these, these men and women, including Beth Moore, are People who are respected and looked up to in that world, but there's a at least a lot of post-election analysis says a lot of the issues between Trump voters and the rest of elite, you know, New York East Coast is is a class issue. Do you think that might be the case in evangelicalism as well?
0: Uh, I have a hard time thinking of Beth Moore as elite New York, but <laughs> well, no, that's a good point. Fair enough.
1: So we're uh, we're we're exploring here.
0: I think there must be something like that. and you know it's is it primarily class could there could be a class dynamic? i, I think that, that probably
1: not class based on economics alone. class combination, education. I don't know.
0: I think that you you have to just kind of piece together some different bodies of information that we have out out there. I mean one is that apparent schism between established leaders and and then the rank and file. and I mean, another is that we know that there are millions. Of people who will identify as evangelicals who re- rarely go to church, we we also know that people in America who are in the working class and poorer classes are less likely than than groups above them in the socioeconomic spectrum to go to church. I mean, polls kind of all over the place about this because some polls suggested in, that in the Republican primaries in 2016 that these quote non-church-going evangelicals which I think is oxymoronic, but still, I mean, the, the the media is totally comfortable with a category like that. Now, that non church going evangelicals in the early primaries gravitated sooner to Trump, but then some other polls have shown that after Trump was elected, that church going evangelicals, if we may say that, you know, were were Trump's strongest supporters. So that if you believe those, it's a wash. But the, but the problem is is that when when we talk about those polls. We almost never know anything from those polls about what the people mean by saying that they're evangelicals. And, and so I really value the polls that, that for instance, will ask people, OK, so you say you're evangelical or you're born again. Do you go to church? But we rarely get even that. Usually what the, what the polls are looking for is, do you self-identify as evangelical or born again? And if so, and you're white, then tell us what you think about the border wall. Uh, tell us what you think about immigration policy. And 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 so forth, and and I don't I don't blame the secular media. Their their job is usually to cover political controversy. It's not to cover you know people's prayer habits or something like that. I mean, I, so I, I get that, and I don't blame them for it. But I I think that this huge amorphous group that we talk about as quote, evangelicals, and and, and, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of people that are identified as, or self-identified as as evangelicals. There's a lot going on in those numbers. I mean, it's, you know, church-going, non-church- going. You get lots of people who are not Protestants who say that they're evangelicals. You you know, we don't know what they believe, most of them. I mean, it's a big amorphous group, and so surely, I know that there's millions within that group who really are dyed-in-the-wool evangelicals and dyed-in-the-wool Republicans and pro-Trump. I mean, there's millions of people who fit that description. But there's a lot of other people in that group, too. And so I I find it difficult to, you know, make any kind of firm conclusions based on polls about what that group actually believes.
1: It's it's also true when it comes to the answers. So let's say, let's take the The number at face value, even though we've discussed it, it's not a face value number. 81% voted for Trump. But you don't know why they voted for Trump. Exactly. You don't know if they're hardcore believers, they voted with their plugging, you know, plugging their ears and their nose and their eyes doing it or what their motive was or what the priority was. That's the thing that frustrates me about a lot of polls is that it gives just a one yes or no or thumbs up or thumbs down answer, but it doesn't really tell you why often why. And when you do get the why, there's a question. There's a why question to that answer that uh, the polls are just they're not a tool to get into that. That isn't they're not the best tool for that
0: no yeah and, and and it would be much more expensive and and involved to try to get those sorts of answers but again you know in my church i i have lots of friends who voted for trump and they are i didn't vote for for trump i voted for a third party candidate but but i mean i have lots of friends who who voted for trump and they run the gamut from people who barely could bring themselves to do it even though they hated pulling the lever for, for Trump to people who are quite enthusiastic within the same church. So it it, it would be difficult to capture that that range. I mean, so a little bit of polling has captured the idea that a lot of practicing evangelicals were voting more against Clinton than they were for Trump. But usually uh, you just don't get any kind of nuance or texture like that in the polls.
2: So as you were doing all of your research on the history of the evangelical movement and looking at where it is now in... In its current crisis moment, did you start to form any ideas about what advice you might give to pastors, lay church leaders, uh, people people with some kind of ostensible influence, <laughs> some kind of influence in the church about what to do with this information? Is it should they, in your opinion, and this is this is obviously a matter of opinion, is it should they join in some kind of redefinition movement of what evangelical is and really work on reframing that, or is, Is it more of a a conversation that we'll have on podcasts and think about, you know, in, in contexts like these, but might not trickle down to that everyday ministry reality?
0: I do think it starts with pastors. It, and if you have a pastor who has been in the habit of describing, you know, people like us at her church as evangelicals, you, you know, then then I think there could be some work there that wouldn't take very long. And it could be, be quite simple about, you know, historically, what do we mean by evangelical and make really clear that it's about spiritual theological issues related to being born again and the authority of the Bible. And And I think, um, you know, just making that clear can help detach the association from from politics some pastors I think if you especially if you haven't been using the term evangelical may want to steer clear of it entirely for for really good reasons but but nevertheless I think that pastors are are, are should be very very careful about not conveying to people that your church is attached to a political party. I mean, it can be very granular, I think, about what situation an individual pastor is in about how much the pastor can afford to press that point. Because, you know, in, in some church contexts, especially in very, very red states, I mean, if you if you make clear that this is a church that has... Uh, people who are both Republicans and Democrats, and that that is yeah, A-OK with the pastor and the leadership and so forth, you're going to get some flack from church members about that. And so I wouldn't presume it to, to one size fit all fits all about how pastors should handle this. But I, I think in any normal church situation, you are certainly going to have a spectrum of political views. And I would think most larger churches and, and, and healthy churches, you're going to have uh, even different party commitments. And so I think in this uh, day and age that pastors are, are just going to have to work on making clear that in a cultural and political environment where political difference is absolutely intolerable to people, especially in venues like Twitter, that the church has to be different. And I mean, I mean, there's some issues that I think Republicans have to deal with about, you know, well, if you say you're a Christian, then how can you be a Republican? Or if you say you're a Christian, okay. how can you say you're a Democrat? I mean, I think to me, both parties have <laughs> some real problems to deal with right now on, on that front. But, but pastors, I think, I think, have to be very conscious about moving beyond those kind of political divisions in the context of of the church and to say, we're we're going to have disagreements about about politics, and and that's okay. And in the context of the church, we love each other in, in Christ, and that transcends our political boundaries. I think now is an era where pastors really need to be impressing that point upon their congregations.
1: I think given the theme of your book and the theme of the discussion today, that's probably a good place to to end it on. So thank you very much for those comments. Again, for our listeners, we listed a few books by Thomas Kidd, but Who is an Evangelical? The History of a Movement in Crisis by Yale University Press is his latest. As I said, there hasn't been a book or an article by Thomas Kidd that I haven't really appreciated for its insight, so I encourage you to pick it up and read it as you have the ability. Now to the portion of our show we call Precious Moments in which we share about something that has brought us joy. So I'm going to start with my co-host Kyle.
2: So I alluded to this at the beginning of the podcast, but this weekend was a, a nice restful weekend, and not because it was an opportunity to just kick back and relax, but because two weekends ago, we started potty training our two-year-old. Oh, Getting uh,
1: down to reality. That's baby. <laughs> right.
2: And uh, kind of thought that if we really pressed in with her for you know a, a week or so, that she would start picking it up. And she did great. She really did an awesome job. But we realized that... Between taking care of a two-month-old at the same time and other obligations, we weren't ready. We have switched our, our operation from a sprint to a marathon. There you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I used to get frustrated with my wife when she was so patient with our kids when it came to potty training and ending breastfeeding. And her answer, traditional answer was, okay, Mark, have you ever seen a teenager who is still potty training? No, dear okay then, just relax. It'll happen.
2: <laughs> That's good.
1: <laughs> Where can people find you?
2: The easiest place to find me is the C.T. Pastors newsletter. And as Mark said, uh, if you can't find a link to subscribe to the C.T. Pastors newsletter somewhere on Christianity Today's website, then we're not doing our job. Yeah.
1: C.T. Pastors is a, is a wonderful resource, and uh, not just for pastors, but for church leaders in general or people who like to think about church leadership. So I encourage you to pop into that vertical on our website. That's how I got my start here at C.T. by thinking about such issues with a magazine called Leadership, and so my heart, having been a pastor for ten years as well, my heart is always with the work of CT pastors. Tommy, what's what's brought you joy this week?
0: I'm a little further along on child rearing process, and uh, so our, our boys are 16 and 14, and they are uh, potty trained. They, then and they're potty trained. Okay, and, uh, it's a wonderful <laughs> moment when that happens. We had a great cross country meet this weekend. It's just been satisfying to watch them work really hard over the summer and get to the point where they can just run seven or eight miles at the drop of a hat. But it was also a great time at our, our, we go have our kids at a Christian school and there's overlap with people we go to church with. And so it was just, it was just kind of a nice Texas morning with friends who you see regularly and you know would pray for you and family together and so forth. And you just kind of, this is this is nice. This is, seems like th- there's a big part of this. This is the way the Lord intended life to be.
1: Yeah, that is great. I remember going to a lot of cross country and soccer and basketball games when my kids were younger. Yeah. So where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you or find out more about what you're writing or thinking?
0: Sure. Well, I'm all over uh, social media—Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you search on Thomas S. Kid on any of those platforms, you'll you'll come up with me. And I also blog at the Gospel Coalition. I um, have a blog called Evangelical History that I do with Justin Taylor there, so you can find any of my blog posts there.
1: That's great. I would recommend that to our listeners. Well, my precious moment came this Sunday morning, just the other morning. It was a bowl of oatmeal. It was the first meal I had in two days.
2: <laughs> oh.
1: Because I had the flu. Oh. So uh, the fact that I could eat a whole bowl of oatmeal and a few ounces of blueberries and not feel nauseous afterwards, that was a precious that moment. That is a nice <laughs> moment. <laughs> and then I actually had enough energy to go to church. So, you know, you do, you do for, you forget to appreciate normality. And, but it's at times like that you go, it is great to just have normal digestion and enough energy to get out of the house and go to church. So that was a precious moment for me. I publish something called The Galley Report. It's a weekly report in which I link to articles, comment on them. A lot of people find it pretty helpful. You can find You can subscribe to that or even see a sample issue at christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport. That's spelled G-A-L-L-I. Report.
3: That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This
1: podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you end up listening to podcasts. But if you go to Apple Podcasts, if you want to rate and review the show there, that would be great. We will see you all next
3: week. Bye.